Creative Conversations. I'm Roger Humphrey. In this episode, I'm talking with master luthier Aaron Green. Aaron builds some amazing high-end concert classical guitars, as well as repairs and restores rare and historic guitars. And he has a unique perspective on the creative process. Please stay tuned as we join in progress. So, well, basically, uh, I was talking about, um, or I will now talk about, how I got started was when I was a 16-year-old kid, I met my teacher. Um, and I was very interested in learning how to build guitars uh, because I had been given some misinformation. And that misinformation was that building guitars uh, was a good way to make money because guitars were expensive. So I thought, well, this sounds great. <laughs> let's, let's look into this. Um, and of course, in that, and this was 1990, 91, in that general, well, 1990, actually. Um, Maybe it was 91. All right. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. The internet was not there yet. So finding information was already uh, a challenge and, uh, and I got nowhere fast. And then I met my teacher at a festival that was being held at my high school, a man named Alan Carruth. He was displaying instruments there. And it was, you know, one of the, certainly probably the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Um, but I started apprenticing with him and, uh, and he had a, a very um, uh, scientifically based method of creating sound. I mean, he, he was uh, definitely one of the pioneers in this country of, of the science of acoustics as it relates to stirring instruments. And uh, while he himself is a very old school European style builder, meaning that he built everything. He didn't just build guitars, he built violins, he built harps, cellos, hurdy-gurdies, mountain dulcimers, you know, built instruments, one-offs for people who ordered specific uh, things that didn't even exist. Um, and, and he did it all with hand tools and very, very little, by the way, of power tools. So this was, uh, you know, for me as, a, as a, an apprentice to him, uh, it was literally being tossed into the deep end of the pool because I didn't have any appreciable skills <laughs> at all, other than tenacity. Um, so anyhow, going to uh, this convention, as I was saying, um, in Vermilion, South Dakota, right after I graduated high school was my first step into a larger world of instrument makers and, um, and also to see my teacher in a different light because he was now lecturing and they were taking notes and listening to him. And I was, of course, very proud. Uh, but it was where I discovered the classical guitar. That was, you know, up until then, I was going to build steel strings and, and electrics and um, and at this uh, convention on the very first day, I heard a guy playing Bach on a classical guitar and that, that changed everything for me and, um, and was a real uh, kind of surprise to me. I, I, had, I was very shocked that this was compelling to me, but there it was. So I ended up uh, looking at the roster and uh, there was a lecture by a guy named Robert Ruck, who I had no idea who he was. And of course, in the classical guitar world, that's, you know, <laughs> he's one of the one of the great luminaries of American classical guitar making, and certainly one of the most successful and most prolific and most uh, high, high caliber. I mean, he produced scads of instruments at a very high degree of uh, refinement and excellence. And he was um, someone that, uh, you know, really changed my way of thinking, even though at that particular instant, when I was there for the lecture, he was talking so far over my head in language I totally did not understand or relate to that I, I literally thought he was crazy. I, I wrote on my notes, this guy is nuts <laughs> or something. <laughs> like that. I still have my notes upstairs. I'll have to check. But I, I remember being um, at that point when he first started coming out and talking, I, and I was like, this is this is surreal. And but he, what he did do that stuck with me and made me think mm, there might be more to this guy than I'm. Um, you know, seeing was he challenged the audience and, and in this challenge, he completely unhinged me. It was like, he just literally leveled me to a pile of rubble because his challenge was very simple. It was, I want you to picture the best guitar you can think of and think of it in every possible detail. And it occurred to me while I'm trying to do this, I have absolutely no idea what that even is. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, I, I guess, you know, because you, you fall back on language, you say, oh, I want it to sound great. I want it to be better. I want it to do, you know, and that's, that's, that is not it. That is, that is, it is, it is completely, um, it's just a uh, space filler. It has no merit. It has no substance. And my, my, my phrase for that, when I'm working with my students, 
uh, because I, is is uh, when uh, other teachers are telling them, uh, you know, uh, their assignment for the week, and they will say, "Well, I want you to practice this till it's better," uh, and it's like, "Well, that's non-information." I mean, that's, <laughs> what does yeah. it mean? What does it mean to practice? What is better? I mean, you know, that's can we be a little more specific than this? But that's that's the, the assignment that they're given, and I that just fries me. It's just like it's just that's that's a that's a non-assignment disguised as an assignment. Right. Well, I mean, it also, well, it depends a little bit on the level and the, you know, the student, because you can say that provided that they have the interest to delve into their own brain as to what actually that could possibly be. Sure. Um, you know, that was the thing that Ruck did that made me think he was nuts is he held up a hand plane. He's working on a guitar top. He's planing the top and he's, he says, this is not a plane. He's holding this, you know, hand plane up. It's not a plane. I'm like, well, looks like a plain to me. Um, all right, what is it? I mean, if you see it as that, you're assigning a name to it that is completely independent of, of it. It, it. This is a tool I'm using to, it, it is a vehicle for me to realize my intent. And there is the big issue, the intent. Like what do you, how firmly defined is your intent? Because if you have any prayer of being able to manifest something consistently, you better have a really clear intent. And that is kind of in what I do, uh, building guitar, that is, that's what allows the, what apparently is a metaphysical process to actually work. You know, I have an intent, I have a very clear vision for what I'm trying to achieve that has to by default change with every single guitar because I'm working with different people and I'm using materials that I will only use once. Like I, you know, I have lots of lots of wood that is cut from the same piece of original tree or whatever. And every one of them is different. They're all different. So I have to be able to dial into the characteristics that they bring into the table, alter my methods and approach or not choose them at all to begin with because they're not gonna support my vision. And then uh, discern what it is about this person I'm working for that's going to fit them and the way they produce sound. A lot of way I look at it is, as I said before, is it's like um, it's like making pants. I'm a tailor. I, you know, the pants got to fit. And if they fit me, that's great. But if they don't fit you, well, I've just, you know, I failed. Um, the other is is that a great string instrument and a, truly, I think, mostly lives in the world of a great traditional guitar. But I think all guitars, to a certain extent, do this um, in the hands of a really, you know great player and great in this sense would be someone who has a very clear intent of how they produce sound um, and pay a lot of attention to that. In their hands, they will take that guitar and make it their own. You know, I, I honestly think after a certain amount of time with one of my guitars, their name should be on the label too, especially if they do a bad job. <laughs> that guitar doesn't sound better than the day I built it, then they need to, their name needs to be on there too. Um, but, you know, for me, it's a, these things are incredibly malleable. They're, they're, they're the closest thing to a living, breathing thing that a human can produce that isn't another human, you know? Um, and, and for me, you know, the, the, the thrill in getting a guitar in the hands of a player is to then hear them on it in a way that it now is evolved and it has become more them and it fits them and it works for them. And that's, that's, you know, but I don't necessarily assume that's going to happen right out of the gate, but I want to get them something that's close enough that there's the connection. And then as the connection is, is, you know, deepened the, they, there's the interchange between the two. Um, and then, and then the instruments there's, you know, that's funny because there's some examples I can really think of. Like, um, I'm not, not a huge fan, really speaking, of the guitars of uh, John Gilbert, even though I totally respect him. He's a great American builder. Um, but he was, you know, one of the kind of progenitors of super guitars, you know, and, and his guitars, generally speaking, the ones I've heard have not, from a tonality perspective, really done it for me. I, I don't, in fact, I'd say I dislike them. There are two examples, though, I can think of that stand in contrast to that. Fred Hand as a Gilbert that is the most soulful machine you ever heard. Um, and it's because it's Fred's guitar and has been since, you know, so for 40-something years now, or 40 years anyways. Um, and it's like an old shoe, but Fred has a very 
musical style of playing and that guitar responded to it and he altered the instrument. I guarantee you it didn't sound like that when he got it. It sounded like something enough like that that he wanted to continue to play with it, but he made it his own. One that was even more interesting to me though was David Leisner's Gilbert. Um, because I remember hearing him play in the early 90s when he got back into playing after he, you know, basically, um, you know, I don't know if the word is cured, you'd have to ask him, but he certainly worked through his, um, his uh, focal dystonia very famously, right, uh, which, yeah. you know, it changed his career and he, you know, through his own tenacity and, and determinedness, taught himself how to play in a way that did not, um, you know, that, that the focal dystonia was was either removed from the equation or cured. Either way, I heard him play this concert at Longy, and I honestly, I didn't like it, you know, and it wasn't his playing, it was the sound of the guitar. I just found it bright and, and piercing, and I, I just was not very um, interested in, in that at all. I heard him some years later play, and it was a different guitar. It sounded like a Steinway. Wow. I mean, it was amazing. It was beautiful, gorgeous sound. And I said something to him. He's like, no, it's always sounded like this. And I'm like, no, no, not true. And I was talking <laughs> with a, a mutual friend of ours in New York who's known him forever. And he's like, yeah, no, that, uh, that, that's David. That He did that to that guitar. I said, well, the guitar had to be able to go there first. But I think, you know, this guy, that's his guitar. And I've, I've heard him in other, you know, I've heard him play since. And it's consistent. It's just that thing sounds like no other Gilbert. That is his guitar. It is a, you know, his name should be on the label as well as uh, John's. And, I heard um, um, I, I heard Raphaela Smith's uh, in a recital hmm. playing an eight string Gilbert. And uh, she, okay. she kind of favors the eight stringed instruments. And uh, uh, and I remember well, saying, I got an eight string. <laughs> Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a really sensational guitar, actually. But um, I, I really, anyhow, but but yeah, I I remember remarking to a friend of mine. I said I don't ever remember a Gilbert sounding that good, and he says yeah. it's not the guitar; it's her. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's both. I mean, you know, I would I, I, the, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, it's it, she can't do it if the guitar isn't capable. But but uh, yeah, it sounded nice. You know, it's an interesting thing because we were talking earlier about, you know, people said, uh, you know, that a, a lesser guitar um, and then, of course, the amount of work that you have to play. I, I honestly think if you're going to ascribe the term better to anything relative to musical instruments, the better ones are the ones that get in the way less. You know, they allow the musician to. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, you know, impeding them. And, you know, Julian Bream said that. At uh, one point in his great book, which I adore, uh, Life on the Road, he said um, he could probably give a concert on an orange crate. He's like, but, you know, no, most people aren't going to necessarily enjoy it and other people might not even know. But he said that, you know, a really, you know, it would be less satisfying to him. And then he talked about the Hauser guitars and what made them special, at least, you know, the ones that he had encountered and made them special for him. He said, they'll do whatever you want them to do, provided you know how to do it, which is saying quite a bit. <laughs> you, really think about it. It, you know, it, it puts it back on you, but it means the, the vehicle will take you there, you know. Um, and that's, uh, and as a builder, for me, that's a big part of the challenge is how do I get them a vehicle that'll get them there, you know. And provided it's a vehicle I want to build in the first place, as long as, you know, our taste is, you know, uh, in, in some ways, you know, um, in agreement, then, you know, we'll have something. Um, and as I was saying earlier, also, you know, when I have occasionally, it hasn't happened often, but I have been approached by people who wanted me to build something that was so far outside of what I do that I just, I said, you know, I'm not comfortable doing that. That's not going to work for me. I, I not, I don't, it's not that, the experience won't be enjoyable or working with you won't be fun. But if I don't have faith in the outcome, you know, I, that's a big problem for me. I, I need to, you know, it's not so much a question of only being on terra firma, but it's also that I have to be satisfied through the process. I have to be happy with what comes out at the end of the day. And I have to also be able to stand behind it. Now you, you do a lot of uh, uh, repair work and, and I'm assuming some restoration stuff and things like that. How does that influence what you, what you build as a builder? Um, well, it's mostly high-end restoration. I mean, I don't do too much repair work unless you know, I, 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 part of the problem is I'm a nice guy and people bring me stuff and I'm like, I don't want to do this, but I know there's <laughs> no one else. 
So I do take on a fair amount of mercy work, but you know, the high-end restoration is of course, so that's a totally different um, kettle of fish and, and it's a wonderful um, opportunity. You know, my career is, is three distinct, you know, tiers as a builder, which I've been, you know, far by far away the longest and now in my 31st year as a builder. Um, but, you know, I'm a dealer of, uh, of vintage guitars and guitars that I like, you know, I don't really represent contemporary makers because I, not because I don't like them, but I don't necessarily want to be in that relationship with my colleagues. It's, um, dealers don't treat builders particularly well, frankly, uh, at least in my experience. And that's why I don't work with builders or don't work with dealers as myself. And now that I'm a dealer, I know they won't work with me anyhow. So <laughs> it's, a, it's perfectly fine. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, the dealing came about through studying these old instruments. And that was to study them was to inform myself as to how I could be a better builder or how I could be a more effective builder, how I could, you know, take these qualities from these instruments and, and bring whatever aspect of them that I find compelling into my own work. Um, the dealing part came about because I, I love them. It's a lot of fun to live with these guitars that I could never afford. And I'm good at it. I'm a good salesperson because I don't lie to people. I find something compelling and then I reveal it to the person in a way that they can understand. And then I give them the guitar and hopefully they agree with me. Um, but the restoration kind of has to go along with the dealing because a lot of these guitars need work. And um, one of my big uh, missions, I guess, in, in my career is to uh, change the way guitars are valued in the, you know, in that market, because the dealers, generally speaking with the ex with one exception in this country and that being Richard Brunet who's a friend of mine and certainly someone I admire tremendously uh, and if you could say I've modeled my career after him and you wouldn't be wrong um, anyhow uh, the dealers aren't luthiers they don't they really you know and that's fine when you're dealing with contemporary luthiers who are able to step in and take over when something goes wrong but when you're dealing with vintage guitars those guys are dead so you can want Hauser the first to repair your Hauser one as much as you want, and it's not going to happen. Um, so what they do is they speak about these things from a point of condition and the valuation that goes along with the condition is insane. It has no basis of in reality in musical instruments. If I told you I had a mint condition Stradivarius that never had a crack in it, you would tell me I didn't have a Stradivarius. Or if I did, it was a 400 year old instrument that was so terrible that no one ever wanted to play it. <laughs> um, and you wouldn't be wrong because <laughs> um, these guys aren't luthiers they speak to these things that you can see and oh it's never been touched it has no cracks it has this it has that they're not even talking about the structural integrity they're just talking about whether or not it's got a crack and then there's a high valuation that's been placed on them because now people think that's important um and that's nuts um what is important is that whatever work the instrument gets it is the best work that can be done and it's done in the best possible way of making sure that you're not creating future problems for the next guy so um you know high-end restoration is a very particular uh affair and it is always a case-by-case -case basis like there are things that i've we've had to do that i wouldn't advocate for necessarily unless you have no choice you know you've got a series of choices of what you can do and, and you know if the end result is you want this to be a functional musical instrument which by the way as a builder i would certainly want for my own work sure um you know sometimes you you got to do things that might on the um onset sound like you know a horrible idea. I mean, I had a guitar, uh, it was not a particularly super valuable guitar, but it was this guy's partner, it was his Velasquez, and he fell on it. So now the back had all these horrible cracks in them. And the thing is, is like, technically, I could have pieced it all back together again. I could have made it so that the back was whole. It would not have been the same at all because the nature of these cracks were not the kind, they weren't just, you know, uh, vertical cracks that went along grain, they went across. And that's when mm. that's the stuff that, you know, there's no, no esto posible. I mean, you can fix it. I mean, we could have scooped out most of the wood and reinforced it on the inside and made it disappear as bad, but you would not have functioned as that back had functioned. So it got a new back. 
and I picked a piece of rosewood that matched his very closely. I matched the aesthetics perfectly. I, I mean, I mean, you you would not know unless you knew um, that that had been done. But you know, it, it's not something that uh, I would you know if you can avoid it, you avoid it. But there was no avoiding it in that case. So you know, the thing with these older instruments is that the idea of their value being tied to how pristine they are is kind of a losing battle. I mean, you're eventually it's going to have a crack. I don't care how careful you are. All it takes is one whoops. And then, you know, you got to now, now your investments destroyed. Um, so, you know, to have that kind of valuation is, is nuts. And I don't, you know, I've been working very hard uh, to try and educate people that you know they need to be looking at this a little bit differently and and so far it's it's been good but as such i have to do the restoration you know <laughs> I, I can't just talk about it i mean i have to be able to demonstrate it and, and show people that now as as a guitar ages uh, and my my opinion has always been that you know assuming it was not played badly <laughs> or or has been neglected as a guitar gets older uh uh and it might pick up a few um Oh, it might pick up some personality in its <laughs> in its appearance, um, but they tend it, it to my ears. They tend to sound better. Is that is there some basis in fact for that, or is that just wishful well, thinking on my part? No, I mean I think that um, you know we were talking about how the term "better" is kind of a <laughs> nebulous, yeah, kind of a nebulous and hollow um, term. But you know the fact is is that the guitar perhaps is a little more realized. You know, I would say that it has, uh, in a lot of ways, I think that, you know, these things are, they are intended to be vibrated and played. And, it, you know, if it's a really high functioning instrument, to use that term as opposed to better or good, um, that the benefit of all of it playing is going to be resultant in the sound. You'll, you'll discern it when you feel it. And it may be something the player is far more cognizant of than than the audience, but that's okay because this is the guy who's having the experience. I mean, we're all just, you know, voyeurs, um, but this is the person who's actually engaged in producing this music. So, you know, for me and, and as a builder, this is a huge part of, you know, what my conversation with people is how I need to know how they need the guitar to feel, not just sound. You know, I as a as a player, I I can every time I play music, and I've been doing it for a lot of years. Every time I play a song, every time I play a note, it's an incredibly uh, intimate moment. You know, yeah. it, it, you know, I mean, the guitar is up against me. I can feel the vibrations, you know, internally. Oh, absolutely. And you know, and I'm and I'm touching. It's not like a. I, I look at it, the piano as a beautiful instrument, but I look at it more like an appliance. You know, and. Um, uh, as as opposed to this guitar that just becomes a part of me, you know, if it's a good guitar, uh, and, and it responds hopefully to my touch. So right. very intimate. So yeah, a uh, voyeur is probably a very, pretty good word. <laughs> well, and it's you know, I, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that you know, the people who you know love piano will find their own way of you know having that exact same sensation. Um, sure. And certainly uh, uh, a really great, you know. Uh, musician is always going to be something you know amazing to behold um, but for me the guitar wins it's just it's there's and this is why I build you know even when I'm building in a guitar that leans more towards the modern side of life you know especially how it responds um, and, uh, and the evenness of its uh, palette um, I want the color I want the dynamics I want something that's going to give the person playing it the ability to take it outside of just playing notes you know that, that now they're making music yeah and, and to me that's what the guitar does better than any other instrument for me like that is it and when you get rid of that which is what happens in modern guitars uh, that are seeking you know horsepower above all else uh, you, this is a very unsatisfying experience in fact I, I it's enough to you know, drive me to want to do something else with my time. Um, certainly, I don't go to concerts to, to listen to that. And I think as musicians, um, you know, especially ones who are still building their careers, they might want to pay attention to who's in the audience as much of the fact that they have an audience. You know, it's like if you're just playing for people who are, you know, for lack of, I mean, I hate to say this, but, I'll, you know, guitar geeks, um, you, you, that's a problem. That's not a sustainable uh, career. I mean, Bream, Segovia, uh, so because all these guys, you know, they played for people who love music, 
you know, these were concert audiences and they may never go hear another guitarist again, but they went and heard that guy because he, you know, he delivered the goods. Um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is actually from Horowitz. Hmm. Uh, he was, they did a 60 minutes interview with him years ago, of course, when he was still alive. And, and uh, it would have been amazing if he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that was kind of a really stupid statement, wasn't it? No, it's all right. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, but he had in his career taken some criticism because he would very often, in most of his recitals, would include some old chestnut piano, you know, some Chopin piece or something like that. Hmm. And, and something like that, that, that maybe a student would play or something that was technically not as demanding as some of the other pieces. And so he responded to that and he said, I'm always aware of my audience. And he said, and many of the people in my audience are not there of their own free choice. He said, they're there because somebody else made them come. Yeah. And he said, but their money and their time is just as valuable and they deserve to have something for their experience also. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, and I thought I thought that was so well put to be, you know, you it's good to be artistic. It's good to put stuff out there. But I think also uh, the idea of of being uh, uh, to to recognize your audience and the fact that some of them are not uh, appreciators of uh, of classical music, you know, mm-hmm. and to still make sure that they they can walk away and go that one song, you know, <laughs> and 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 be able to do that. Absolutely. I mean, Bream talked about that a bit in his book, um, Life on the Road, when he talked about, you know, creating his programs and how he would build a program, he would start out with something approachable. And by the time he, you know, lay on, you know, the uh, uh, um, uh, Henza piece, or something, something that, you know, was going to make them have to really listen to him, he had already captured their interest. And, you know, and, and he, he talked about it, like planning a meal. I mean, you want um you know, you want uh, variety, you want um, complementary variety, you want things that are, you know, taking you on a journey, as it were. And and that was a, a great way to put it. But also, yeah, I mean, these people are here to hear, if they're here to hear you, you need to, you need to, you need to make them happy. Um, and for me personally, when I'm in the audience, what makes me happy is to hear color and dynamics and something that's compelling me to want to listen to you as opposed to, wow, you hit all the right notes in all the right places. And it was so vanilla. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I want to leave. Um, in fact, I had told you last time uh, we spoke about an experience and I actually cleared it with the guilty party uh, <laughs> to, to tell this uh, again, because it was, I wanted to make sure he didn't, um, wasn't, uh, didn't, I don't know, that he didn't feel that it was creating an issue for him. But anyhow, um, one of the greatest concert experience I've had in the last few years was um, a young uh, American guitarist named Javier Hara, who's, you know, quite famous. And right. yeah. a really, uh, uh, what I like about him is that you can, he- and you can hear this, um, he was playing on a very modern guitar and he was great. And then he started playing on a very traditional guitar, contemporary traditional guitar. And he's a, he's, he's greater. I mean, he's just, you know, the, now there's a whole dimension to him that was not there before and you can hear it. Um, but I had an experience with him in New York where I, uh, was showing him a guitar. Uh, this was right before COVID. I was showing him a 36 Hauser. And one of the things that I'm working towards is trying to create, uh, interest among those who have the money to do this, you know, foundations and such to purchase these instruments and put them in the hands of great concert virtuosos, because that's why Stradivariuses and Guanariuses are still around. That's, you know, then, and these are the instruments these virtuoso want to play. Well, they don't own them. I mean, they're owned by banks, but, you know, it's, it's a, it's, everybody wins in this situation, believe me, including the people who own the instrument. Um, Because, you know, as expensive as a Hauser is, it ain't anywhere near a Strad. Anyhow, so be that as it may, this is before COVID, uh, the world hadn't changed yet, and I was uh, very interested in at least seeing if there was some kind of synchronicity to chase this idea with him. And I showed him this Hauser, and he was, uh, it was in his hotel room, and he was playing it, and it was great. I'm listening to him like, oh my god, this guy's amazing. I mean, the colors and dynamics and, you know, the guitars fitting him, this is wonderful. And he said, hey, can I use this tonight? I actually have to play in a recital tonight. Yeah, of course, that'd be great. So it was a recital with the entire faculty of uh, the San Francisco Guitar Conservatory uh, or Conservatory. And uh, 
and these are all world-class players. I mean, there's yeah. not a slouch among them. I mean, they're all great, great players, but every one of them was playing a modern uh, and very modern guitar. And, you know, as uh, Javier was playing in, you know, kind of warming up before the show, uh, one of these other guitarists, who's a friend of mine, who I, I, you know, I think the world of him, but he was sitting there and he's like, ah, that guitar ain't loud enough. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know about that. I, I, I mean, I didn't build it, so you can say whatever you want. I mean, even if I did build it, you can say whatever you want. But I, you know, I certainly didn't take offense to that other than to say, I, I think you might, you know, I don't know, let him, let him figure out the guitar. Well, I think something must have, he, they may have said something to him because he came out and played a lot more. He brought a lot more out when he was actually performing. But what was interesting is he was the last one. So all these other world-class players played before him and they played beautifully and it was fine. And then he comes out and the only way I can put it is like that scene in Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color. I wow. mean, it was so remarkable. It was it was almost laughable. I mean, I'm listening to him. I'm just like, oh my god. And yes, those guys were a little louder than him, and it didn't matter at all because he, first of all, he was compelling you to listen to him, and second of all, they weren't there. So you know, the the volume discrepancy was over in about three seconds. But what wasn't was the fact that he just just destroyed them. I mean, he just killed them. They, it was, it was, it was the difference between what time is it? I got to get the heck out of here. And, um, what time is it? Oh my God. I, you know, I want more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I really did. I was like, it was, it was, it was it very encouraging to me as a builder to see the younger players are actually waking up to this, you know, what's been missing in the guitar world for quite a long time, which I think is, you know, every generation is in some ways a reaction to that, which came before them. And, and, uh, and I can certainly understand players uh, who, you know, grew up looking up to people like Bream and Segovia, charting their own path in a way that defined them and, and made them unique. Um, but the problem is, is, you know, like in flamenco, once you have Paco de Lucia, well, yeah, I mean, everyone can play like that now, but they're not Paco, you know, and right. they, they, you know, and, and when he did it, it was... It was, you know, it was Paco. So you, you know, they, there was a, there was an enormous amount of merit because, of course, he was Paco. I mean, you know, he was the the great, you know, genius virtuoso, and he totally changed the face of flamenco and what was possible. And he brought in world music and jazz, and 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 you know, and he he charted a career that was absolutely stellar, and um, you know, and also very much in keeping with how you know how you're supposed to do that. But he, um, but you know, he. I hear other people playing like that or, or aping kind of his sound and his, you know, sensibilities. And it, it just, it doesn't, doesn't work. It falls flat for me personally. Uh, I, I have made that comment over and over and over again, that, that the, uh, the modern players um, are technically so good, uh, fast and accurate and, and clean and just everything about it. But artistically, it seems to be lacking. Um, mm -hmm. I was, God, I was just roaming around on YouTube uh, a few months ago, and and uh, uh, and once again, this this uh, video of Segovia playing Asturias popped up. And I mean, I've heard that song by a million different players. I played it myself as part of my repertoire for probably thirty years, and and I thought, uh, you know, but I I just thought well, I'll click on it. And, Usually, when I hear a lot of these players play this thing, I'm 30 seconds into it and I'm out. I mean, just I'll find yeah. something else to listen to. And the next oh, thing, yeah. I knew, the next thing I knew, it was over, and I had sit there and was just compelled to listen to Segovia play this. The, the art, the level of artistry was so far above, and and mm. uh, and it was just. I mean, and I've heard people criticize his playing as too much this and not enough that. And I, yeah. yeah, my my feeling was, you know. If I sit there for seven minutes and listen to that song, having played it hundreds of times and having listened to it hundreds of times, and and yeah, probably, and and to be to to have my interest captivated in in, in that particular way, and uh, yeah. and I thought you know it's compared to the to the new place. I go back to, I mean, I come into this in in the in the early seventies. I came from being a folk singer. Uh, and I kind mm -hmm. of kind of stumbled into classical music in my early 20s. And in the early 70s, you had, you know, about five players that that really dominated the American scene. 
there sure. were there were others, of course, you know, but but uh, uh, I could I, if I listen if something came up on the radio, listen to classical music radio, and uh, and you know within four measures I, I knew which guitar player it was, you know, because oh, because sure. Bream and, and Williams and Segovia and Parkening, uh, those four primarily were the ones that got played a lot and every one of them had a different sound but every one of them was absolutely exquisite in the way that they approached the music and um so, go ahead oh no i was just gonna say yeah the, your experience is exactly like mine with the difference being you know 20 years but you know i in the uh, early 90s uh, bought a segovia uh, cd a compilation called the romantic guitar and it had some Mendelssohn on there, which I loved. I loved Mendelssohn on the guitar. I just, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I didn't even know who Mendelssohn was, but music, the Venetian boat song, and um, um, uh, what's... Uh, Manzanetta, that's it. Yes. Bum, 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 yeah. Anyhow, so I, I Bream, I see Bream, and I, I didn't know who he was, but, you know, I said, well, there's a classical guitar CD called the Romantic Guitar. I've got one of those by Segovia. Let's see what this one is. And I looked at it, and it had this, some of the same music. So I'm like, all right, great. And I buy it and I listen to it. And my first reaction was actually, I didn't really like it because it stood, it was so different sounding than what I was already used to. Of course, I got over that real fast. Um, and, and Bream is hands down my favorite guitarist. Um, you know, I just, I adore his playing so much. Um, one of the things that I direct people to, and you can see this on YouTube, um, is uh, him playing the second Bagatelle. And uh, the reason I send people to listen to that particular recording is the piece, you know, I mean, all respect to Walton, I mean, as a piece of music goes, it's kind of like sort of empty. There's not a lot there. It's, it's very, um, it's almost like a satie piece, you know, the second bagatelle is. I mean, the rest of them are, you know, they're, they're all different. And uh, the third is just incredible um but i love the second the way bream plays it because it's listening to someone who is making that music come alive and the dynamics and the color and textures it, it's what makes that piece of music like without it it's you know you would be you know very 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 boring but the way he plays it it's you just can't stop listening and it's it's magic it's absolute magic um and even Walton said that because at the end of that particular clip, he's playing. He's in. You know, he starts out playing in his house, and it ends with him playing in the garden next to Walton, who who says, "You got that better, or you changed that." <laughs> he said, "You changed that," and he and Bream is like, "It's exactly as you wrote it." And he said, "Well, you did it better." <laughs> and, and, He's Bream no end, but um, but his his colors and his range and the guitar he's playing, of course, allowed him to do that. You know, he had that wonderful Romanios, and um, you know, I, I've been fortunate to represent a number of Romanios guitars. I have a couple right now, one from the '70s that's very similar to the Bream guitar, and um, you know, in the right hands and a player who's willing and capable of, of exploring color, um, there's some of the best guitars in the world. You know. Uh, I, and I think it's, it really has to be kind of a marriage between the, the player and the instrument. It's just, oh, you know, it's, it's, I think, uh, you know, you can take that guitar and have Green play it and it's wonderful. And, and you could have another equally good player. I, you know, certainly I wouldn't compare myself, so I wouldn't say me, but, but if we took somebody like a Parkening or if we took somebody like a Baroeco or somebody like that, they're not going to be able to pull out of that, uh, what Green pulls out of it, you know, just because of the difference in the player. Well, and that's really the truth. And I never argue. That's why I don't argue with players, first of all. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I know a lot of builders who do or did. I mean, I think that maybe is more of a function of the older generation. But, you know, I don't argue with players. In fact, it was funny. I, um, one of the people I really like um, as a person, as well as I just adore, is playing a Scott Tennant. And I mean, Scott's just, he's just awesome. Um, I've met I him a few times. Him. I've met him a few times. He's a great guy. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. We, I, 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 some of the funniest, you know, just laughs, uh, you know, I've been either he was around, we were out in Montana and, uh, at a guitar camp thing, uh, the whole LA guitar quartet was there and they're all lovely guys, but yeah. Scott's the one I know best. So we were talking and, um, we're, you know, Montana, where we were near Glacier. I mean, there's grizzly bears and cougars and, you know, I mean, you, you know, <laughs> 
things happen out there. And uh, at one point we were talking and I told them a line I had just heard, you know, we we're having lunch or something. And I was like, you know, Scott, it's not that I have to be able to outrun a bear. I just have to be able to outrun you. <laughs> he, he laughed. He's like, "That's dark. I like that." But, um, but on a different on a different time, I was hanging out with him. This was uh, actually very recently, a couple of years ago. Um, he was talking about guitars, and you know, he was playing his Friedrichs, and um, he had just gotten one that he really liked, and it was a very nice one. And he said, "We were talking about a mutual friend of ours, a client of mine." Uh, a guy who I've uh, sold a number of guitar scores, got an amazing collection, and he's a bit, and he's a real player too. I mean, a guy who's you know world class player, and uh, and he's a big aficionado of Hauser guitars, which I happen to also agree with. But Scott was like, yeah, you know, they just don't do it for me. And I was like, really? He's like, no, I get it, but it's just not not me. It's not the guitar I want to take out on stage. It doesn't it doesn't do what I need the guitar to do. Well, I'm I mean, who am I or anyone else to argue with that guy? Right. Like, okay, those pants did not fit. Um, whereas the other guy has an equally strong opinion that this is exactly the guitar that I want. It's the only guitar I want. And anything other than this is, uh, is just not going to cut it. So, um, you know, that's what makes it so interesting and compelling to be, you know, in this business for me is that I'm dealing with these people who you know, have very different tastes, but they all want the same thing. <laughs> you know, they want the guitar that works that fits them and therein lies the challenge for me as a builder or you know or as a uh, you know matchmaker if you will when i'm selling something that already exists um but it's always an interesting experience for sure what, what kind of a uh, impact does it the, the type of strings make when you when you're building or, or when you're trying i mean do you have because right now i god when i started there was you know like about three three brands and that was about it and now they're right. just all over the place and all kinds of different materials from you know carbon and titanium and you know on and on and on and on and on and on and on and, and, right. and, and they're redoing I, I know there's a couple of companies now that are reissuing gut strings and things like that uh do you have a, a preference yeah i mean it's interesting because my taste has changed or they've changed or we've all changed. I'm not sure, but for many, many, many years, I was uh, kind of the poster boy for uh, Labella's uh, 2001 series strings. Uh, my guitar was on the cover for, you know, almost 20 years. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I built my guitar and, uh, and uh, that was the deal. I was like, all right, I'm going to build this for you and uh, it's going to be the cover of your string pack, right? Okay. <laughs> so, and it was, it was great. I mean, and, and they're wonderful people and I love the company and they're, they, Labella is, uh, I mean, they've been in business in one form or another since the 1600s. Right. So they know what um, they, they make their strings in house. So they, uh, a lot of companies are white labeled. So it's, it's, you think it's a different string. It's not, it's someone else's string um that uh that is um you know anyhow so i like their strings a lot i love the basses uh in particular the trebles it depends on the guitar some guitars respond really well sometimes they're they're very they're kind of on the brighter side and um and for my flamenco guitars they're my go-to string like i did that's the string i use like medium tension 2001 series you know best string there is for for me for a flamenco guitar for the kind of flamenco guitar that i build um in the classical world, especially with the older instruments, I, I've been very fond of Augustine Regals and Imperials because I feel like they bring uh, a weightiness to the sound that is not getting in the way of the initial um, uh, response of the, of the guitar. So there's, there's a lot of meat there, but it's still got a real edge to it and, and an inception to the note, which is fast. And, and they, they work, and they work really well. I... I you know, I always tell people um, when I sell them a guitar or build them a guitar that you need to explore, you know, find what works for you. Because again, this, this is, you know, this is, this is part of the pants, you know, and um, you may find that other strings work for you better. And I have a client, a young lady who's now in Belgium studying with Antigone, uh, who I adore. His name is Sarah. Her name is Sarah. Um, I built her a guitar a few years ago. She's great. She's one of Chris Ladd's students and then she uh, uh, got admitted uh, to you know the school that Antigone teaches at in Brussels and um, she's over having a wonderful adventure 
but she was telling me she really likes Savarez Contigo strings and she's been using them on her green the guitar that I made for her. So I got some of those as well. And, and you know, they, it, it's very individual. Some guitars, these strings work good and some, you know, less so, at least for me. Um, on the bases, I almost always stick to the Labella 2001s, although I will say the Savarez Contiga bases are quite good. Um, they, they, they are a little less bombastic, uh, which sometimes is better, you know, depending on the guitar. So, uh, but I, I always leave it up to the players to tell me, you know, the one string, you know, I don't get is probably the most popular one out there. I just, I, I, I hear them and I'm like, I, they don't sound good to me. I just don't get it. And Frank loved them. And he put them on his uh, guitars, including the ones I built for him. Frank Wallace, who was my dear and dearly missed um, collaborator and, and one of the best friends I've ever had. Um, but he, um, you know, he was a big fan and I won't say the name, but we all know who I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, he loved their strings. I just, I never could get around to them. I'd, I'd put them on a guitar and I'd take them right back off again. So, huh. okay. Yeah. I, so, but when you're, when you're building your guitar, is that, does that inform your build at all when you're trying to listening for sound? It would be hard for me to say it didn't, but it would be hard for me to quantify how it did. You know, that that makes sense because... Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm not thinking about the strings per se, but of course, you know, that's kind of part of the equation. I, I'm more thinking about the response of the instrument and, and then, you know, in some sense, it'd be finding strings that complement that. Um, you know, I, I guess in some sense, if I was building like a gut strung guitar, that would probably be a little more of a, uh, of a, 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 a factor that I would really have to carefully think about um you know for one thing i i on the other side of that scale i don't like carbon strings i just don't and i've only put them on one or two guitars in my entire career where i was like okay that actually is a better you know a, a, a better a, a more realized instrument now because of it um but you know i know players who love them and i'm not about to tell those guys you know that they shouldn't use them I used them but, when I I used them when I was gigging. Uh, I, I, I'm retired from performing. I don't do that. But but uh, when I was, I'd find myself playing you know, cocktail parties and things like this. I was never a concertizer, um, and uh, so I'd be playing these cocktail parties and and people, you know, eat, you know having drinks and eating cheese off a toothpick and and uh, right. and, I, and I found that the carbon strings allowed me to punch through the, the crowd noise. And so oh, I, could, sure. I, I could get, because they were very punchy and very bright, but I found that, that um, when I was just practicing during the week, uh, mm. I, I didn't care for the sound at all. But when I stopped performing, those strings went out the window. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because, uh, I mean, every guitar has its attributes and for it also has its, you know, uh, shortcomings. And, you know, one of the things that Frank uh, Wallace did consistently, which I did agree with, which I was like, you know what, that, that works. Okay, I'm not going to argue with theirs. He loved a carbon fiber G-string because it added a level of clarity that he found often lacking in nylon on the instruments he would put them on. He didn't put them on every guitar that I'm aware of. Um, I don't know if he ever put them on mine. Uh, he probably did, but you know, he he liked the the tactile aspect of them as well as the um, increased uh, clarity because uh, the g-string as a string goes is kind of at the you know at a disadvantage it's this big fat string it's at the lowest percentage of its breaking point you know? so that has a big effect on on how it functions um, especially relative to the other strings around it and um, on a lot of guitars g-strings kind of tubby and not particularly well defined and that's as much the guitar too, by the way. It's not just the string, but um, the uh, he liked them, and I wasn't going to argue with them. Um, I built. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't build. I restored a really sensational Danielle Friedrich. Um, it was brought to me by the family of, uh, of a jazz musician named Youssef Latif, who's a very famous jazz. Oh, yeah. um, flautist, I believe, right? Yeah. Isn't he a flautist, or uh -huh. he was not a guitarist. No, but uh, he uh, flute and sax, I believe, strictly strictly okay. a reed guy. Yeah, 
Yeah. So he um, he passed away and he had this Friedrich because he lived apparently he lived in Paris for a while and he needed a guitar. So what did he do? He bought himself Friedrich, which, you know, at the time he bought it. I mean, it was just, you know, that was the guy. Um, and of course, I'm sure he knew it was a great guitar. But the family brings me the guitar and it's it's pretty messed up. I mean, it lived in a closet, it had a huge crack in the back. The crack had warped. Um, so, you know, braces were loose. I mean, it, you know, it needed some love and, you know, we were able to make it look like it never happened. It all, I mean, it, you know, my restoration partner, Carl Franks is a genius and he's a microsurgeon and he's done things that I still have a hard time believing. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to have him on, on board for these, uh, these massive jobs, but the family brings me this guitar. And I said, look, you have really one of two choices. You either sell it as is, in which case you're not going to get anywhere near what this guitar is worth because it's not really playable. Someone's buying it on speculation that it's a good guitar and they're going to also have to sink a fair amount of money into it. Or you could have us restore it. And if it's a really good one, you're going to, you know, you'll do a hell of a lot better. I'm sure either way you're going to, you know, do better. But if it's a real one, you're going to do really good. So Anyhow, they went for it. And as I was restoring it, I was contacted by a gentleman who specifically wanted to buy that guitar. And it was great. I had to travel to bring it to him, but that was fun too. Um, but anyhow, he, um, he said I, I needed to have a super low action. And I said, well, define that for me. He gave me the numbers. And I'm like, that's a flamenco action. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. He said, that's what I want, but I want you to use as a lion's strings, carbon fiber strings. I was like, are you sure? And he said, that's all I play on. I'm like, all right, well, it's your guitar, so I'll do what you want. And um, with that action on that guitar, and it was a spruce top Friedrich from 1970, I think, uh, certainly the early 70s. It worked, it sounded great. It was, un it was sensational, actually. I, I, it, it made me think I need to revisit these strings and I put them on another guitar. I'm like, Nope, <laughs> I don't need to revisit them at all. That, that one's an outlier. That one, that, that thing just, uh, that liked those strings and it worked well and, uh, everybody was happy and, um, you know, but that's a, a rare example for me. Wow. That's a lot to think about. I really enjoyed talking with Aaron uh, and I want to thank you for coming on the program. I hope you enjoyed it too. If you'd like to know more, there's a link to his website in the description. I also want to thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you'll return soon to Creative Conversations with Roger Humphrey.